The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Malachi. That's the very last book in the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. We'll be reading through verse 4 this morning. The word of the Lord. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old, and as in former years. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 7. We'll be reading through verse 15 this morning. The Word of our God. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent Take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here in the Gospel according to Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. This passage is about Jesus. Uh, That might not be immediately apparent because Jesus, after all, was talking about John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus says of John the Baptist that he is the greatest man who has ever lived up until that point in history. But you see, the greatness of John is precisely to be found in the fact that he was sent to prepare the way for the Lord. Uh, John was not the goal of his own prophetic ministry. Jesus is. Jesus is infinitely greater than John. With John, the old covenant is coming to an end. With Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God has crashed into history, and the old is being replaced. With Jesus, the change is so dramatic that those who now reorganize their lives around Jesus Christ are not simply more privileged than John's disciples. You know, you think about all of history, and you go back and throughout the Old Testament, 
that most of the Jewish people did not regularly encounter prophets. What an extraordinary privilege it was for those who got to hang around with Elisha or Elijah and hear God's word directly from the prophet's mouth. And if the greatest of the prophets is John, surely John's disciples were blessed indeed. But Jesus does not say that now that he has come, that his disciples are more blessed than John's disciples. He says that you're more blessed, more privileged than even John himself. This passage, therefore, is not ultimately about John. This morning's passage is about the greatness of Jesus Christ. Uh, We're going to look at this passage under three main headings this morning. First, more than a prophet. Second, greater than John. And third, violence and victory. Let me give you those again. More than a prophet, greater than John, violence, and victory. We begin with the fact that John is more than a prophet. Now let's remind ourselves of what we learned in the previous passage about John. Uh, John the Baptist is not in some fancy resort. He's in King Herod's prison. And he is about to lose his head for the sake of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Everything that we know about John reveals that he lived a life of faithful abandonment. That is, he gave up all the things that would have simply brought him temporal pleasure. He lived a life of faithful abandonment for the sake of advancing the kingdom of God and proclaiming that the Son of God had come into this world. Yet as John hears about Christ's ministry, he's puzzled. It isn't exactly lining up with what he thought. Uh, The reports he hears are are quite unexpected to him. In particular, they leave something out that he himself had proclaimed the Messiah was going to do. See, John had announced, quite rightly, that Jesus was going to baptize both with the Holy Spirit and also with fire. Yes, he would proclaim mercy, and he's hearing that Jesus does that. But he also proclaimed that the coming Messiah would thoroughly quench the threshing floor, that, that is, he would take those who were in rebellion against God and burn them up like they are chaff in a furnace. And John doesn't hear any of that taking place. And so he wonders. John is now hearing accounts of our Lord's astonishing miracles and of his great mercy towards sinners, but he isn't hearing anything about the Messiah's terrifying judgment. And so he asks, what in the world is Jesus up to? Now, we can't be certain about this, but what seems likely is John didn't understand fully that the Messiah was going to come twice, that there would be both a first and second coming. And so he's taking things that Jesus is going to do for certain at his second coming, and he was conflating them and wondering why they weren't already taking place. And so John sends messengers to Jesus, and Jesus sends messengers back to John. That is, Jesus replies, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended by me. Now Jesus realizes that these words, words meant to strengthen John's faith, could easily be misunderstood by the crowds. 
And so Jesus wants to go on to affirm his fundamental continuity in his ministry with John. And he also wants to point out just how great John truly was. So our Lord begins with the fact that John was a prophet, a true prophet, but in fact he was more than a prophet. Uh, Look at verses 7 through 10 with me. As they went away, that is, as these, these disciples of John are going back to tell John what Jesus has told them, Jesus begins to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. See, three times Jesus uses this rhetorical question. He's drawing us in, right? He's trying to get to that last one and focus on who John really is. That's how rhetorical questions work. Three times Jesus repeats that rhetorical question. What did you go out to see? Uh, First, Jesus asks, did you go out to see, what did you go out to see in the wilderness? Right? I mean, you're all, you're all flocked out there. We should remember, by the way, John had an enormous following. Even after Jesus is raised from the dead and the disciples are engaged in ministry, there are still disciples of John the Baptist going out. Vast crowds came out to see him. And Jesus is asking, why? What did you go out there for? Uh, did you go out to see a reed shaken by the wind? I wonder what you make of that. A reed, well, it's a very soft, insignificant thing. It's not an oak tree. Right, being shaken by the wind. Now, if we didn't know anything about the house of Herod, we could easily imagine that Jesus is talking about a facilitating human being. Right? You didn't go out to see John just getting blown around by the, the currents of this age. Um, somebody who was telling people what they wanted to hear, seeking the pleasure of the crowds, did you? And, and you know, um, that's a plausible interpretation. It's a plausible way to understand what Jesus is saying. And the obvious answer for the crowd would have been, no, I mean, that's not John the Baptist. This is a man who courageously told us the truth, at least as he saw it. Uh, Now, we all know that people um, often bend their ear toward those who flatter them, right? That happens. John wasn't that kind of man. But it turns out that uh, if you simply follow people who flatter you, that's going to leave you really empty, And so people also sometimes turn to those who they know are telling them the unvarnished truth. And that's what John was doing. He was telling them the truth about themselves, they were sinners, and the truth about God and what God was requiring of them. But I don't think that's what's going on. See, we actually do know something really significant about Herod. Herod had taken the reed as a symbol of his kingdom. Actually printed it on coins. Right? And so the reed is not John the Baptist blowing in the wind. It's Herod blowing in the wind. The wind of John's preaching. See, John's preaching threatened Herod at the very foundation of his kingdom. Was he a legitimate king over the Jewish people? And what Jesus is saying on this understanding is, 
listen, we, we all have problems with Herod, and John really did shake him up, but you weren't going out in the, wind, uh, the wilderness just to hear political preaching, right? It wasn't a political rally against Herod. You were going out to hear the truth about yourself and about God and how you could be made right with God. You weren't going out to see Herod being blown around politically. That's not the point. Second, Jesus asks, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Uh, You know, we have a saying, uh, the clothes make the man. And honestly, there's a bit of truth to that. Uh, If you're at work and someone walks in wearing a $2,000 tailored Italian suit, you instantly give that person respect. Um, You might wish you didn't, but you do. It's kind of human nature. You realize this person must be someone important. And um, Jesus is saying, is that what you went out to see in John? You know, someone who wore fine clothing, soft clothing, didn't get his hands dirty in the fields. He goes, no, that's not John. Uh, John was out in the fields wearing a coarse camel hair coat and eating locusts as his diet. Um, You read the New Testament, you can't help but notice that John, while tender in telling people the truth about God, he was a hard man. He he wasn't living a soft and easy life. John was not someone who was wearing soft clothing like the court prophets, who, who would do religion in ancient Israel. By the way, this is the way the pagans worked as well. There were always court prophets. Who, who used religion as a way of blessing the state and whoever's in charge at that time to try to grant them le- religious legitimacy. But we all know that John wasn't like that. John was neither a celebrity like Taylor Swift or Tom Cruise, nor was he a business executive like Elon Musk. Nothing wrong with those people. I'm not, I'm not trying to pick on them. I'm just saying they get followings for a particular reason. All that commended John to the crowds was the word of the living God that had been entrusted to him that he faithfully proclaimed. And so for a third time, Jesus asks, what did you go out to see? A prophet? This time Jesus gives an affirmative answer. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Beloved, John is so great as a prophet that other Old Testament prophets prophesied about the arrival of John. You do realize that's not something the Bible does. Uh, the best of my knowledge, the only other prophet that gets prophesied about in any meaningful way from the Old Testament to the New is Jesus. Right? The Old Testament prophets point forward to Jesus, who of course is the prophet par excellence. But John is actually prophesied by both by Isaiah and also by Malachi. We read one of the passages today, but you also want to read Malachi chapter 4, which also matches up with this morning's New Covenant reading. John the Baptist is so significant that the other prophets talk about his arrival. In Malachi, the verse, that's Malachi uh, chapter 3 verse 1, reads, Behold, I send my messenger, that's John, and he will prepare the way before me. Now, now the Lord's words to Malachi are are really kind of interesting to think about. Prepare the way before me. When you see this prophesied messenger show up, who do you think is coming next? Yahweh, right? 
prepare the way before me. But Jesus actually modifies these words just a little bit. And I wonder if you noticed that in today's reading. Now, superficially, this change would leave open the possibility that John would prepare the way for someone other than God. We're going to see that Jesus slams shut that possibility. Jesus makes abundantly clear that Malachi chapter 3 and Malachi chapter 4 are proclaiming that John comes before Yahweh himself. But in today's passage, Jesus says, not before me, but before you. Why does Jesus make that change? Well, first of all, I want to suggest that if he wasn't Yahweh, no one else would dare to make that change. But Jesus makes that change, I believe. And I don't want to be too dogmatic at this point, but I think he does this for a very particular reason. He's trying to make clear that there's a distinction in persons, not in being, between the Father and the Son. That is, he's saying, uh, my Father, who is God from all eternity, has sent me, his eternally begotten Son, into this world. And, And I would actually invite you to meditate a bit on these opening verses of Malachi chapter 3 this afternoon, Because if you do so, I think you're going to see that Malachi already points us in that direction. This is not an entirely new thing with Jesus. Uh, What's interesting to me about Malachi chapter 3 is when we go from verse 1 to verse 2, Malachi himself shifts the pronouns. Malachi chapter 1, God says, I am sending my messenger before me. I'm sorry, chapter 3 verse 1. God says, I am sending my messenger before me. But then he immediately shifts to the third person and says, the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, at the very least, that identifies Jesus as the Lord of the temple. But since the temple is the house of Yahweh, it's identifying Jesus as Yahweh. What what Malachi is already pointing to, Jesus, I believe, is making more explicit in this morning's passage. God the Father sends both John the Baptist and Jesus, yet John comes as a human prophet, and Jesus comes as Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, We'll say more about this uh, when we come to the end of the passage this morning. For now, the implication is clear. Jesus is infinitely greater than even John the Baptist. Verse 11. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Uh, That verse really ought to jar you. Uh, As one scholar puts it, Jesus was paying John a very great compliment, but he is also saying that the time for that sort of work that John was doing has come to an end. Consider the staggering nature of our Lord's declaration. Um, Slow down a bit here. Sometimes we read the Bible and we just go, yeah, yeah, that's that's fine, that's right. Because the Bible says it, we know it's true, which is right. Put yourself back and be a first century Jew. And Jesus is saying to you, of all the people who have ever lived, John the Baptist is the greatest. Greater than Father Abraham greater than King David, greater than Moses. You know, for a first century Jew, telling, telling someone that one of your contemporaries was greater than Moses or greater than Abraham, 
um, they wouldn't have just thought you were crazy. They probably would have said that's blasphemous. But Jesus plainly says that. But you know the really jarring thing Jesus says is, John was the greatest, and the very least in the kingdom of heaven is greater still. Do you get that? Jesus is plainly saying, Jack, Isabel, right? You're greater. Tammy, greater than John. Do you believe that? I mean, Jesus is not being ambiguous here. He really is saying you are greater than John the Baptist. Now, he is not saying you are more faithful than John the Baptist. What Jesus is talking about here is privilege. He is saying the very least of us in the kingdom of heaven today is more privileged than every single person who lived up until John the Baptist, of whom John himself was the greatest. How can that possibly be? Um, I want you to think about how great the blessings come to the, the, the blessings are that come to us in terms of the new covenant administration of the one covenant of grace. You now have Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Right? It's done. You now have the fullness of revelation of the totality of Scripture. Right? The Old Testament prophets look forward to, to Christ and they wondered themselves. We look back and we have God's word explaining to us precisely what Jesus has done. You have the Holy Spirit poured out upon you. And astonishingly, God the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, interceding with you in your prayers. That's why Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. You can hardly imagine, if you're one of the disciples who's living with Jesus, and you're walking around with him, and Jesus goes, yeah, I'm leaving. Well, sorrow fills your heart. That's what happened. And then Jesus says, it's better for you that I go away. But it is. Because if I don't go away, I'm not going to send the Holy Spirit. You are in a better, more blessed position right now than any saint in the Old Covenant. Beloved, that ought to change the way that you think, That ought to change the way that you live. The transition to the new covenant that Jesus ushers in is not merely a new flavor off an old menu. Um, Some of you probably like Chick-fil-A more than you like Raisin Cane's. Some of you might like Raisin Cane's more than you like Chick-fil-A. They both, both make really delicious chicken. But there's not that much difference between them. That's not the way the Old Testament to the new covenant works. The Old Covenant was good. God had poured out his grace on his people. He'd entrusted them with with his holy word. He'd given them priests. He'd given them sacraments. That was good. I better do it like this. That was good, but I can't get high enough for the new covenant because the blessings you enjoy now in the new covenant are so much greater. Now, if you've grown a little bit lethargic in your Christian life, this reality ought to shake you out of your slumbers John was more than a prophet, yet you, even you, are greater in privilege than he was. And so, as I say, that ought to change the way that we think. That ought to change the way that we live. This brings us to violence and victory. Look at verses 12 through 15 with me. Jesus says, 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. I have some bad news about this passage. Um, as Grant Osborne points out, there is no way to make these verses simple. And, and the problem lies in something that I can't just straighten out for you right now, but I invite you to meditate on it when you go home. But he, here's the problem. The ESV translates this passage, suffered violence and violent. But those words don't have to be translated that way. Right? Negatively, the kingdom of God is suffering violence. That's one way of translating it. But positively, it could be the kingdom of God is advancing forcefully. Believe it or not, both are completely legitimate translations of the Greek. And then the, the second use of this very same term has that same, it could be negative or positive, orientation. And since you have two uses of something that's ambiguous, you got four possibilities. Right? Positive, 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 negative, negative, positive, negative, negative. Uh, now that you know that, you can sit in your chair at home today and you can go, which of those makes the most sense? You don't need to know Greek. It's not going to help you out at all to know Greek except to know those are possibilities. You can just sit there and say, which makes the most sense in this context? And I'm going to cut to the chase here and tell you I think the ESV gets it right. I, I think the broader context of this passage justifies translating this negative, negative. The kingdom of God is suffering violence. That is, violent people are attacking the kingdom of God, and they seem to be making real progress. Well, how do you know that? Well, if you, if you were with us when we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 10, you'll realize that when Jesus sends out his disciples on their very first missionary journey, journey there's a lot of emphasis on the fact that they're going to be persecuted and attacked for it. And then, of course, we have to remember John the Baptist himself is in prison, right? The, the kingdom of God that's crashing into history is not being welcomed with open arms. Those who hate God, those who are alienated from God, are violently fighting against it. And, of course, you know the rest of the story in Jesus' life. But, but I'll remind you that in the Gospel of Matthew, from this point on, the, the opposition, the violence against Jesus is going to grow and grow as we see more and more people wanting to put him to death until, in fact, Jesus is put to death brutally on the cross. The kingdom of God is and will suffer violence. But here's what Jesus wants you to know. Rather than that violence stopping the kingdom of God, that violence is part of God's plan to advance the kingdom of God. I mean, think about the, the most basic fact about the Christian church, is that Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us. That's why the universal symbol of Christianity is the cross, right? The, the, the Romans and the Jews meant it as a way of violently stopping this movement. But God advanced the kingdom. God wins the victory over Satan, sin, and death by taking on this violence on himself on the cross. And, and in that same providence of God, the ordinary way in which the kingdom of God advances in history is through the apparent weakness of the church, right? We, we, we don't come with swords, Muslims do, right? That's, that's how Islam expanded, with, with people with swords going out and running over and taking over caravans and conquering their neighbors. 
And sometimes Christians have done some pretty appalling things in history, so that's, that's not the point here. But actually, the way the kingdom of God advances in history is sheep telling people about Jesus. Right? Not, not lions, sheep telling people about the lion of the tribe of Judah who won the victory by going through the cross. And so I think the natural way to take this passage, when you consider the whole context, is the way that the ESV does. The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. It continues to suffer violence. Violent individuals are apparently making real progress in opposing the kingdom of God. But they are engaged in a relentless war that they cannot possibly win because they are fighting against the living God. Uh, By the way, throughout my entire lifetime, people are always telling me that the church is about to die. Uh, If you're old enough and you've been in the church long enough, you've probably heard that. And and people seem to miss the fact that although that that word goes out for 20 centuries, the church grew from 11 people in an upper room. Well, that's not really fair. There There were certainly women that were believers that are not part of the original 11, but, you know, very small people, to now being the most claimed religion on the face of the earth. Right? The violence is real. But so is Christ's victory. Jesus Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. Well, as I say, you might want to sit with the passage in the quiet of your home. I mean, what I just said is all true, but you got to decide, is that what this passage is about? Um, So you might want to sit in the quiet of your home and run through the four options, but I believe the ESV gets it right. So what about John? All the prophets until John were leading up to this very point in history. And not just the prophets. Jesus points out that the old covenant law also found its goal in him. That's the whole point of particularly the sacrificial system. It finds its goal in Jesus Christ. Um, I think Tom Wright puts this particularly well. Because we could miss something here. Professor Wright comments, The whole sweep and swath of history that led up to John and his work, was now being wound up. Not because it was unsuccessful, but because it was. See, John isn't fading out of history because what he did was a failure. John is fading out of history because the whole point of his life was to point to Jesus. And so as Jesus ascends in greatness, John has to descend into insignificance. Right? John's ministry is not wound up because he was a failure followed by Jesus who will be a success. The point of John's ministry was to point to Jesus and he was faithful and successful in this mission. John has done precisely what he was sent to accomplish. He has prepared the way for the Lord. Soon the same violent forces that have laid hold of John would also do their best against the Son of God. Yet in Almighty God's mysterious wisdom, The Lord chose to redeem his people and to conquer Satan's sin and death through the suffering and death of his eternally begotten son. That's just astonishing. But please realize that that really doesn't stop today. Um, The the spread of the gospel always has a cruciform, that is a cross-shaped reality to it. In the providence of God, the kingdom of God continues to advance today while the violent seek to take it by force. Uh, You know, one of those promises they never put in the promise boxes, but um, they really ought to. Jesus says, in this world, you will have tribulation. Right? Jesus does make that promise. 
But please remember that's not all he says. He says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome this world. The violent enemies of the cross are not merely fighting against men, they are engaged in an utterly futile war against the living God. See, this this morning's passage is about Jesus Christ, not simply about John. And because it's about Jesus Christ, we need to remember, as we consider the empty tomb that first Easter morning, that with that empty tomb, God Almighty is writing across all of history this final verdict. Jesus wins. This is the Jesus who is sending us out to disciple the nations in his name. That's where this gospel was going, to the Great Commission. Right? The Jesus who wins is sending us out to disciple the nations in his name. This is the Jesus who is sending us out to disciple the nations in his almighty power. Where does that leave you? Can you imagine the privilege that John's disciples must have felt when they recognized he was a true prophet? And although the world had been held in darkness for centuries, they're hearing the good news that that's all coming to an end because the one he's pointing to, the Messiah, has finally come. Well, that was an awesome privilege. But Jesus states the matter plainly. Beloved, your privilege is greater. That ought to change our lives in two fundamental ways. First, no matter what opposition you face from the world this week or for the entire rest of your life, no matter how difficult your circumstances might become, your life ought to be characterized by persistent gratitude because your privilege is greater than John's. Second, the astonishing blessing that the Lord has given us by causing us to be members of the kingdom of God should motivate us to daily growth in our own faithfulness. I mean, how do you respond to privilege? You try to live up to it. You're not going to, but by the grace of God, you can more and more. We ought to be grateful. We ought to be faithful. Jesus solemnly declares, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Uh, That's actually a hard truth to wrap our minds around, and it would have been crazy for first century Jews. Greater than Abraham, greater than Moses, greater than King David, and greater than Elijah. And yet Jesus adds, the one who is the very least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Beloved, that is you. How then will you live? Amen.